So I'm going to attempt to present how I've begun to think over a number of years about the transition, uh, transitions in Darwinian individuality from individual particles to collectives. Uh, it's something I became interested in through experimental studies, uh, the possibility that groups that we see evolving in experimental bacterial populations may in fact be able to participate in some sort of evolutionary process. And en route to the thinking and the attempts to do experiments, um, I came up with uh, up against numerous challenges, which I think as an experimentalist you are often confronted with uh, challenges when you read theory because you read these great ideas and then you try and incorporate this into the way that you're thinking in a very detailed way with the constraints of the organisms that you're working with. And this took me on an interesting journey, which I'm still certainly going. So um, this is somewhat of a personal view. I've very much uh, borrowed, of course, from, from the literature at large. It's a way that I have been able to make sense, at least uh, conceptually, of evolutionary transitions. It's not the only way to think about things at all. The idea here is to start uh, with individual particles and to end up uh, with an understanding of how particles somehow come together to function as part of collectives. Uh, these collectives have the same essential properties in terms of their ability to participate in evolution as these particles over here on this side of the board. So this is, if you like, a roadmap. Individual particles with particular properties that we'll talk about in a moment, and collectives of particles with the same properties. Uh, that's where we want to end. The idea is to get from here to there in fairly abstract and general terms. Um, there is tons of opportunity to participate and contribute ideas, so please do that, and there will be many different perspectives. But I would like to try and get the building blocks in place, and then we can go back and think about how, uh, well, what might be important, what's not important, how we might embellish, improve, what's confusing, what's clear, uh, what needs to be explained, and what doesn't. So here is a rough uh, a set of points of things that we perhaps will cover in less or more detail. So from here to there, here, there. Uh, we're going to begin by thinking about the properties of these particles in very abstract ways, and, and they, such that the ideas could be applied to any sort of particle with these kinds of properties, biotic or abiotic, it wouldn't matter. Uh, an important idea is this notion of uh, Darwinian individuality, so the title of this talk is Transitions and Levels, Transitions in Individuality and Levels of Selection. So Darwinian individuality is a key issue along with ideas regarding units or levels of selection. We'll talk about transitions in individuality because this is all about a transition in Darwinian individuality. Along route, we'll probably touch on aspects of the hierarchical organization, and already you have a sense of this. Here are particles, and here are collectives of particles. And we see hierarchical organization as a general feature of the biological world. We'll look at what needs explaining. Now, there are a thousand things that do need explaining, but I think some are far more important than other things. On uh, route, we'll look at uh, cooperation and conflict because it's an important part of getting from here to there. Um, a little bit about theoretical frameworks that people have applied to different stages of this progress, uh, of this process. Uh, 
uh, the notion of fitness and fitness decoupling in particular, which I think is important as we go from here to there. Um, I'll uh, outline um, a, a chicken or an egg, a chicken and egg problem that really caused me to stumble enormously for a long time, particularly with experimental <coughs> approaches. And I will try and explain uh, how uh, this chicken and egg problem comes about and the fact that it's not real. Uh, and we'll present, perhaps, depending on how time goes, some solutions which come from thinking about the very earliest uh, kinds of proto-multicellular organisms as they emerge. So sorry, on uh, point seven, what is it? What is the words in parentheses? Uh, well, uh, that's more for me. <laughs> Reproduction. Okay. Uh, and uh, the notion of de-Darwinization. Ah. So we'll we'll get to this. Desalination. It's basically ripping the guts out of the lower level. Um, okay, and this in particular makes me um, draw attention to the fact that uh, uh, some of the issues around here have been developed uh, uh, in discussions with um, Sylvia de Monte and also Alan Clark, a philosopher of biology at uh, Oxford, and also a colleague of mine, Eric Libby, uh, a mathematician at the NZIS. So we're thinking about uh, these entities uh, going from this particular point in time uh, through some sort of process that results them emerging as collective. So there are some essential, uh, uh, let me not draw around that, uh, essential conditions of these particles uh, that must be met in order for these particles to be able to evolve. These particles here are part of a Darwinian population. And that means that these particles vary one from another. Uh, they reproduce. And when they reproduce, the offspring resemble the parents. There is, there is heredity. Some of that variation is linked to reproductive success. So any set of entities that have these properties will evolve by natural selection, whether they like it or not. They need not evolve by selection purely. Drift is an important part of it. But if there is a link between variation and reproductive success, then these particles have the necessary and sufficient conditions to participate in the process of evolution by natural selection. These set of principles are substrate neutral, so they apply to a computer virus, for example, that would have these particular properties. Uh, they would apply to uh, self-replicating chemistries in the pr primitive Earth. Um, they would apply uh, to any set or any level of biological organization that has these kinds of properties. So this could be uh, individual cells here, for example, is easy to think about. Uh, it could be individual chromosomes, uh, and we could, we'll think about different hierarchical levels as we go through. Are you putting the heredity as a separate class? I mean, uh, you could have variation with reproduction without having the fidelity of a memory. Right, so if there's no heredity, 
okay. there will be no evolution, by natural selection at least. One could see evolutionary change. And actually, this is an important issue. In fact, I think a very nice thing about thinking about uh, the set of necessary and sufficient conditions for evolution, one can ask of a given level of biological organization, to what extent does it possess these kinds of um, uh, properties? You know, to what extent does a collective have variation? What about, does it reproduce? And when it reproduces, do the offspring resemble the parents? If there is absolutely no resemblance between parents and offspring, uh, then we may see changes in the frequencies of types through time, but there is no link, at least, or no, no, no mechanism by which natural selection could work under those situations. Well, that's the question. If I have more catalytic, um, mm -hmm. some catalytic cycles, and they depend upon a particular molecule somewhat, um, and there's you know, some variability in the molecule, is that already enough to have the comparability? It's not black and white, so yes, I think yeah. as long as there's some semblance of reproduction, <coughs> variation, and heritability, then there is opportunity for selection to work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in fact, if one starts looking at, um, sort of, well, the non-paradigm multicellular organisms, the, the small eukaryotes and things like this, um, you know, everything from dictyostelium to many more bizarre life forms, and starts asking, you know, to what extent can selection work at this level, loose assemblages, let's say, at a collective level? Well, one can ask, to what extent do these assemblages reproduce? To what extent is there variation and heredity there? And it's not always black and white. It doesn't mean to say that selection cannot be working to some extent or other at a higher level. But including just basic metabolic processes um, that could exist very early on. Yeah. yeah. Life. Provided there is some sort of template or some sort of autocatalytic cycle then you've got the basis of heredity. And I think you know, once you've got anything like that, you're away. Yeah. You know, the challenge, I think, here in terms of explaining the evolution of multicellularity, just as explaining early life forms, is how these basic properties come into being. And I think you know, a really important thing is to recognize that these don't necessarily come free. As we go from individual cells to collectives of cells, we simply cannot take what exists here and shift it up a level. Now, you can to some extent, but maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. I mean, if these are individual cells, then by virtue of the uh, heredity material, there is heredity at the level of individual cells. Blues leave blues, whites leave whites, and so on. Um, but reproduction, this typically is something that needs to be explained. It needs an evolutionary explanation. And it's, to me, this is a key challenge as we go through how does uh, reproduction of collectives emerge. And how reproduction emerges has important implications for how variation is partitioned among collectives. And heredity can't be perfect or you won't get variation. That's right. That's right. So there are, we, we are envisaging some sort of, uh, some lack of fidelity here. So this is a Darwinian population. The individuals within it are Darwinian individuals. And this formulation of um, units of selection very much owes uh, to Dick Lewinton's notion. And there are a lot of different ways of, of abstracting uh, a set of necessary and sufficient conditions for evolution by natural selection. To my mind, though, this Lewinton approach is, is powerful. Uh, it, it avoids some of the problems of the, of the replicator vehicle types of distinction of Richard Dawkins, for example. So we just stick with this Lewinton view here. What's nice about it, as I mentioned a moment ago, one can ask 
of any level of biological organization where there is some degree of reproduction about the extent to which these properties exist at that level. And as we'll see in a moment, these properties do exist at many different levels of biological organization and can operate simultaneously. So the idea then is that we go from these individual particles that are Darwinian individuals evolving as part of Darwinian populations <clears throat> and somehow end up with assemblages or, or collectives of particles that possess these same properties. Uh, these individuals at the higher level uh, also possess these basic properties necessary for differential reproduction, variation, heredity, and reproduction. So how we get from here to here is the, to me, the problem of the evolution, uh, well, of, of, an, of, a, of an evolutionary transition in individuality. And in the context of this meeting, we're thinking about these being cells and these being organisms. But these could be you know, genes and these could be chromosomes. Um, these could be um, two different cell types that through uh, coming together an egalitarian tradition, uh, transition uh, come together to form a self-replicating unity eukaryotic cell, for example. So during this transition, something profound happened. And it's particularly profound, I think, in the context of the fraternal transition between individual cells and multicellular organisms. And that is that, as with all evolutionary transitions in individuality, entities that were capable of autonomous replication before the transition came to replicate as part of a corporate body once the transition is complete. So these guys here are doing perfectly well. They're participating in the process of evolution by natural selection. Everything's great. And something happens, in fact it's happened multiple occasions, on multiple occasions during the evolution of life, that has resulted in these individual entities, in effect, giving up their right to autonomous replication and coming to replicate exclusively as part of this collective. Even to the extent, of course, that in many metazoans, multicellular organisms, we see the vast number of cells that make up the body are an evolutionary dead end, they're soma. So you could look at this and think, you know, this is the greatest trick of nature. These that were existing, evolving, participating fully in the process by evolution, of evolution by natural selection, selection is working, to, to, to promote increasing numbers of types that are most fit. And suddenly, for some reasons, many of these cells give up this right, come to work as part of a corporate body. So you might wonder, uh, in terms of questions, you know, why would individual cells relinquish They're right to autonomous replication and bring themselves to be part of a corporate group. Is it saying something like a right to autonomous? Uh, oh, what? Um, no, they are. Uh, well, well, yes. I mean, I'm 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 posing this as a as a as a problem that. From the perspective of an individual cell that's doing just great, why would it 
give up its right. Now, it is implying some sort of intent that it knows it's giving up that right. But one way or another, it did forego its capacity. I mean, the cells in your body and mine, too, they play by all sorts of rules that not only say stop growing now, but die, you know, development. You know, all of these rules that these individual cells now have to play by as part of this seems to be quite some constraint with regard to their um, free ability to participate in the evolutionary process back here. Now, that's not to say that there aren't huge advantages of being part of that, but one can't explain uh, the advantage of being part of this as the cause of that evolutionary event. Can't you imagine a tradition where you, with time, forfeit more and more of your right to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't need to be an, an instantaneous thing. I mean, how, you know, what goes on here? more and more advantages to form a collective. It will be less and less until... Yeah, possible, yeah. I guess I'm, I'm a little perturbed by this notion of forming a collective. Mm -hmm. right? This isn't how organisms form. They go through gamete, and they go through a single cell, and mm -hmm. then uh, this uh, single cell yeah. executes its uh, replication uh, yeah. program That's right. by going through a stage of phenotypic uh, right. differentiation uh, mm -hmm among its uh, sort of immediate... Uh, yep. So that's, that's fine. I mean, absolutely. Is that chicken and egg problem? Uh, no, the chicken and egg problem is different. But so the, the, the stage that Boris is mentioning would be a very late stage. Ah, well, the, that's, that's the, these, these issues are very transition, important. The short yeah. transition directly to that stage, yeah. or whether you go through something like the posterior where you can have... Uh, yeah. Uh, an organ right. So, so how we get through here? Absolutely, I, I this even, is critical. Yeah. Even uh, um, just a simpler um, uh, situation where one has some uh, um, you know, vesicle with things inside it, which is which is growing and just puts by fission at some point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what about that? that, that that's that's, that's also that's also. Yeah, yeah. Right. At this stage, I'm not. I mean, all of the things that yeah. you are raising are, are important issues. Is this, you know. Well, for, uh, the only thing I've said is that there are many ways that this transition has been made, different uh, domains of life, uh, different solutions to this problem, perhaps some immediate, perhaps some gradual, perhaps some involve you know, fusion and coming together. I mean, there, we'll, we'll talk about some of these things, but these, these are all important issues. Um, okay, so we're thinking about a transition in individuality, starting here, ending up here, with the properties of these particles being... Uh, re well be emerging at this level of the collective by some means so that those collectives can participate as fully in the process of evolution by natural selection at these individual levels. Uh, that's a transition in Darwinian individuality and again you will be well aware that this is a, a major evolutionary transition of which people have identified a number. Um, Maynard Smith and uh, Zath Mari's book uh, brought our attention to these kinds of transitions and the challenges that they pose. Hierarchical organization, just very briefly, I mean, we are hierarchical, well, biological systems, interestingly, are hierarchically organized, and they need not necessarily have been organized in this way. One could imagine different ways of doing it, but we see hierarchical organizations. You know, the level of a population, Darwinian individuals, there is one level of biological organization where there is paradigm uh, Darwinian status. A very clear-cut divide between generations. Our offspring resemble ourselves. Um, uh, there's variation, heredity, and so on. But you know, peel away the layers. We see inside we're made up of cells, and those cells can also participate to greater or lesser extents uh, in evolutionary processes. And those uh, 
evolution at the cellular level is not necessarily always, in fact, it's typically uh, in conflict uh, with the activities or the well-being of the organism as a whole. But we have a whole lot of developmental checks and balances and self-policing systems and so on that keep things intact. We go down below the level of the cell, and we see these cells have organelles in them, and organelles have their evolutionary past as microbes, and we see the genomes in those organelles. We can go into the chromosome, we can see a chromosome is made up of genes, and then there are selfish elements that are working. So there is layers of biological, of hierarchical organization where there are, to greater extents, opportunities for selection to act at these different levels. And very often, the interest of selection at different levels conflict. One consequence, again, you will be well aware of, of selection uh, working at the level of individuals, but also continuing to work at the level of individual cells, is cancer in metazoans. So, what needs explaining? I've already said, to, to my mind, I mean, there are many, many, many things that need explaining, but keeping it general and broad, the evolution of a means of collective reproduction is, I think, one of the greatest challenges to explain. Without reproduction emerging at that higher level, there is no evolutionary process possible at that higher level. Now, as I'll well, perhaps talk later on, and you'll see some examples talked about next week, perhaps the capacity for collectives to reproduce comes for free. It's just a chance thing. It may be just, just fragmentation. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. It may be, as we'll see this work from Will Ratcliffe, uh, a consequence of some fortuitous event that happened in the past that just happened to be, you find itself in a, a, a useful situation at the present time and it results in group level reproduction for free. It, it can happen for free, absolutely. But very often it will not happen for free. All right. The evolution of a means of group reproduction is, I think, number one in terms of what needs to be explained and thought about. And, and very often, I think, as people have thought about these transitions, particularly from a theoretical point of view, the idea that reproduction needs an evolutionary explanation um, is often not explicitly uh, made clear. And this is uh, beginning to get what I think is a, a real chicken and egg problem that emerges. All right, so let's think a little bit more detail about what happens as we go from these individual cells. The general thinking is that <coughs> the first uh, stage in this transition would involve particles that somehow form a group. So let's just imagine the white type there somehow it forms itself into some sort of proto-collective. This could be by all sorts of different means. It could be the production of a glue that causes cells to adhere to one another after cell division. It could be because there's some sort of loose assemblage, some sort of you know, boundary in the external environment that makes this have some group-like properties. Uh, it could be taxis of individual cells toward a common point. It could have many causes. But these individual cells find themselves in a group context. Now, it's typical to think of this as involving cooperation of some sort. Um, and to add before we go into here is that Presumably, there is some sort of benefit for becoming part of a collective. And I think that's a 
pretty much a done deal. We've got to assume some sort of benefit. After all, if there is no benefit, why would individual cells sit one on top of another or very close to one another, given that resources are going to become extremely limiting, competition will be intense, moreover they're swimming in each other's excrement. So it's probably not a good thing to live in close proximity to a neighbor. You're going to be better off being apart unless there is some benefit that outweighs the cost of intense competition and uh, uh, toxicity arising from waste products of metabolism. Does it need to outweigh it, or does it need to just not be worse? Well, at least, at least not be worse, okay. yeah. yeah. I mean, Andrew Murray described a situation where there's a public good, and, and that favor small, <coughs> maybe not yeah. so, so I can imagine again, trying to keep things as general as possible and trying to some extent to avoid some of the language that uh, we often apply to this. All I'm saying is that the first stage involves entities coming together. I think it's almost certainly going to involve some sort of cooperation. The, the benefits of being in this situation have to outweigh the cost, otherwise it's just not going to happen. And we could see many potential benefits. <coughs> I mean, eliminate the word cooperation, yeah. at least for that being. Yeah. And we just say there's some random interaction with chemicals in the environment, and that feedback on them, and if the net effect of those is positive, Mm -hmm. then this can happen. Yeah, yeah. And as long as yes, the overall, it's hard to get away, I think, but maybe we can from the notion that there is probably some sort of cost to living on top of one another. There probably is, but it's a combination of costs and benefits. Yeah. And the ones for which the costs outweigh the, the, yeah. the, the benefits outweigh the costs are yeah. the ones that will yeah. go on for longer. Yeah. And so if I just sort of start with a you know, random mixture of things, it may be that one tends to go to as soon as and then it looks like cooperation. Yes, it could do. Yes, I agree. And, and I like the idea that we can keep it as neutral with regard. Yeah. Yeah. And do you need to have that permanently, or could it be simply a certain time in your lifetime? It could be very transient. It could be a, a moment in the lifetime, and when we see the syndictious dealing, for example. So yes, it, it could be tra very transient and require nothing other than spatial structure. So I guess there are two notions that uh, you seem to be excluding specifically. I'm trying to understand whether this is for, for, for a reason. Right? So one natural way of, of forming these little uh, clusters is, of course, uh, in the process of cell division and, uh, yeah. and sort of failed uh, separation, separation, right? Yes, yes. And another thing is, uh, uh, right, so then they end up uh, right, genetically That's right. Uh, I mean, that, that, yeah. Um, but then another uh, word that uh, hasn't appeared yet is differentiation. You can imagine that they're phenotypically yeah. uh, uh, different by virtue of switching different branches of yeah. metabolism or something. Or just being in different spaces, they would have you know different environmental. But in the same space, mm -hmm. yeah. you can Im imagine uh, differentiation, right? This is definitely something that has to evolve, and it could be there pretty much from this moment. I agree. But isn't that uh, sort of what you want to get out of cooperation? It's just size. You can just yeah. say that uh, yeah. these are more or less identical uh, yeah. things, but uh, you know, by virtue of uh, you know sedimentation, uh, something is somehow advantageous for them. Uh, to, uh, it is, to yeah, absolutely. Larger, but, yeah. but it seems that the most. Uh, mm. um, so the non-trivial tidbit is uh, uh, 
possibility of phenotypic uh, well, it could variation be. within your right. So somehow, yeah. if I understand correctly, so far variation was just genotypic variation, heritable yeah. variation. Mm -hmm. But uh, shouldn't. Well, that's absolutely. Maybe we should just leap ahead for a minute and list some of the things that we we recognise as being important in terms of needing an explanation. So uh, let's put it down here. Um, differentiation, development. Can I just subscribe yeah. to Daniel's mm -hmm. comment that maybe? Can we just talk about what cooperation is after we decide? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let's first, let's first, let's first. Yes, definitely, we come back to cooperation. Let's just first write because we will. I'm not excluding, you know. So things that need, I mean, major things that need to be explained on route to this would include, let's call it development. Uh, germlines, I mean, not for all multicellular, but germline sequestration or soma germ distinction. Um, is that what you meant by de-Darwinization? Uh, no, we'll come to that. And that's that, 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 that's, that's, yeah, but, but that, there are implications, definitely, of bottlenecks and germlines for uh, evolution of the lower level and how some of the conflicts might be controlled. Uh, what else? Um, division of labor, well, it's kind of development. Um, um, well, let's say... Um, and it's just sort of policing, self -rec recognition of self from distinguishing self from other, maybe punishment systems. Why, why do you put biofilms? Because the biofilms mm -hmm. typically. Uh, and Joan put them in the bin, and I would be quite happy for a while to leave them in the bin. I mean, but we could ask the question of a biofilm, though. Right. To why what extent? I mean, you, Dan was making the, the the point the other day. To what extent do biofilms, depending on how we define them and think about them, but a particular biofilm, to what extent? Uh, can it participate in evolution by natural selection at the level of the collective of cells that makes that biofilm? And it may be, depending on the properties of the particles, not at all, or it could be, depending on ecological factors and genetic factors, uh, quite a lot. I mean, there are going to be, I would say, issues regarding, so we could imagine groups of cells, let's keep it simple, it's just a single species or population a group here and a group here, well, if bits could break off of this group, and you know, if uh, and both groups and give rise to new bioforming, new new groups of cells, then we have reproduction. Uh, we could look at the populations and ask, do they you know, resemble the parents? To what extent? You know, if we have uh, high fidelity copying, some means the of reproduction. Of getting broken off by flow. Yeah. yeah. So uh, if we were writers for the New Yorker, yeah. we would put a umlaut on the second O of cooperation. Yes, we would. I know. <laughs> if we if we if we agree to knock off that umlaut, yeah. then it's cooperation. Yeah. And the, which gives the idea that the coop is the sort of spatial yeah, your point is. Maybe that's <laughs> Okay. Um, we're getting into semantics. So, so no, we're not. Um, <laughs> yeah. Excuse things. Yeah. Would you put the ja so reproduction, we think it's something that needs to be explained by this time. 
Anything else that people want to add to the major sort of innovations in multicellular forms that are not necessarily in properties directly of the individual particles that need explaining? So policing is the, like the immune system? Yes, some, so we're going to deal with cooperation and conflict and one idea is that you know, conflicts tend to destroy the production of these groups and, and a, ma a major idea has been that you know, the next major event after cooperation is some form of self-policing, some way of punishing cheats. So that's, and that could be any, well, the immune system needs an explanation. That's a complex deal, but some sorts of self-policing have to come out. Well, you're definitely focusing on things that uh, partition variation between groups rather than the hereditary mechanisms that were necessary for the evolution of, uh, say, differentiation or uh, complex genomes. So Maynard Smith and Salt Mary's book is mainly about you know, the genetics and what would have to be invented, linear chromosomes, right. um, you know, allowing multiple organs of replication, right. uh, endosymbiosis, uh, right. epigenetic, epigenetic inheritance, things like that. Epigenetics is These are the earlier chapters. Yeah, the, these, the, here, here right. I guess I'm Yeah, but no, I mean, this whole thing is more of, more uh, kind of the Bussian approach. Yeah, yeah. So Maynard Smith is over a lot more focused on the genetics, which is very That's important. Right. But of course, if we're thinking about these as cells and those as multi-cells, then a lot of those problems have been solved on the route to getting our first cells and their chromosomes. And so that's why I'm not including them here as we think about cells to multi-cells. So okay? when you're thinking about like how, how do you get differentiation, right? So that's something crucial to yes. cellular or complex yeah. uh, multicellular organisms. Um, yes, yeah, so it wasn't. So I, you had pre-adaptations, and then you also had uh, further evolution of, of these hereditary mechanisms. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I totally, uh, are you happy, uh, I mean, development and differentiation, key issues which are going to involve uh, complex genetic events. But the basic machinery, you know, the chromosomes, replication of those chromosomes, uh, even meiosis. Um, I don't know. Meiosis? Is it there? It's there in yeah. It's in there in single cell eukaryotes, right? That undergo sex. Yeah. So, so there was some pretty complex stuff already in play that we're taking for granted. You might want heritability in there, although you've got it in the DHR, uh, not just reproduction. Behavior. Right. Right. It, it does. And, and it, yeah. Thank you. And the. So what are you placing sex here? In, so is, sex. Is, does it play sex any role in, in what you're saying? Or because, because there can, can be yeah, multicellularity without sex. Yes, so there can be. Yeah, sex, exactly. And again, sex. Or death. death. Ah, that's a really good one. Really death. Yeah. And death, death comes out as soon as you start getting groups, actually. Well, the so death has to precede the grouping, right? Because it has to die. Yeah. And then you have policing on death. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you. Yeah, we could talk a lot about death. Um, oh, okay, no, please. Policing towards death, yeah. I don't see why death has to precede grouping. I think death follows from, I think death follows from the first group. I think it's the other way around. Grouping, grouping, and then death, death follows from. Yeah, because a group... So you something which is bistable, so depending on conditions, it'll either die or grow, and it's not, I don't want it's eternal states and so on, then that's already acting like um, program death. So, I mean, well, there's all these things that somehow, if one goes away from the, the word, then one sees, okay, there's some interactions which will give rise to that, and just via the chemical environment. Well, phagocytosis, phagocytosis mm -hmm. is death. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
But de death at the level of collectives, I guess we're thinking of. Once you've got a collective, it, it, has, a, it has a lifespan. In fact, for a collective to avoid extinction, it must reproduce before it dies. <laughs> okay, let, let's come back to cooperation then. So that's death of the complex, not death of cells. Yeah, no, because again, I, yes, death, death okay. of an organism. Yeah, a li the idea of a lifespan even of an organism. And I think, not to, I don't want to keep taking yeah. you away from cooperation, yeah. but I think uh, the extent to which we think these things are important to be explained depends on the level that we're thinking about. Yeah. There's a level on which death is just a type of differentiation. Yeah. We don't need to right. consider it separately. Okay, yes, but a lot of these level, could be subsumed, yeah, yes, yeah. but it's a, yeah, it's a, let's leave these things as things that we're thinking about. Okay, so, yeah, cooperation. So the idea, and I was already alluding to the fact, it's pretty hard to imagine, so there's got to be some sort of overall benefit to being in this collective living. We could imagine, Joan was pointing out, size. Uh, it could be a colonization of a new niche, whatever. But almost invariably, it's going to involve some sort of cooperation. And that, of course, explaining it has long fascinated evolutionary biologists because cooperation is typically, well, not always, but costly to individual cells. So again, these individual cells that are doing uh, very well, and then we get a variant of this type, X sub C, uh, which causes this cell, let's say, to produce a polymer. I have a hard time mm. thinking about something like chains. You know, so something that failed to separate after division is something attempting to cooperate, as opposed uh -huh. to independent cells that come together to form a biofilm, or they need to. So I don't know, is there some. Yes. Just Why because would it, it could be, be an accidental, right? I mean, the whole yeah. thing can have a benefit yeah. afterwards, yes. but it could be physics versus uh, intentional, whatever you. It's want. always accidental, right? Yeah, yeah. does yeah. it matter? It's always accidental, yeah. no, exactly. of course. Yeah. But yeah. But so I mean, I think we can think about it in the abstract without understanding what that dotted line means. That yeah. dotted line could yeah. be complete yeah. self-division. Yeah. Yeah. It could be coming together. Yeah. But maybe right now we we could see if there are general things that we yeah. can speak about yeah. without knowing what the dotted line is. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, that, that, uh, you know, th this, we already had the idea that this could be a temporal group. It, this, this could, these, these may just be brought together by some um, physical barrier in the environment, really loose. Um, sedimentation. Sedimentation, yeah. But I guess a critical issue is whether this collective, once it exists for some period of time, has got any life beyond that initial coming together. And that's going to depend, well, the extent to which these properties are able to manifest at the level of this collective, and even the extent to which this collective could probably you know, persist. If it's an extremely transitory collective, there's going to be minimal opportunity, probably, for, it to, for, for evolution to do anything with it. Is it also very important to know the niche? Because this doesn't necessarily happen to work. The niche, I mean, well, it's not a word we should throw away. That's the daughter for now. Well, no, it doesn't. Well, environment. This can't well, happen in, let's say, high barrels number flows. It won't happen because uh, they will get swept away as soon as they divide. Yeah. I mean, environment is crucial. I, I suggest a five-minute moratorium on questions. Let's just get to the cooperation thing so we can move on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, where were we? Um, co co so, co cooperation. Let's just take, take it that cooperation is part of it. We've got uh, typically cooperative activities are costly. You know, even if it's simply the fact that you've got to exist in close competition with other types, you've got to exist in the waste products. Um, so why would it be 
beneficial, why would selection favor something that is uh, engaging in some costly activity? Uh, well, one way of thinking about it is that selection will favor this if there is some benefit that accrues collectively uh, to the group. Now, again, we'll come back and deal with cooperation and conflict, and maybe we touch on some of the theoretical frameworks that are relevant to thinking about this. Um, the next stage, though, let's build it in, would be, so we have now a, a simple, well, cooperating, cooperating group. Uh, there is some benefit to the activity of the <coughs> cells. At this stage, I'm not thinking about this group dividing or anything. It's just an assemblage of cells. The individual entities are growing. This group might get bigger. Um, inevitably, if it's being costly at this stage to form this group, and we are likely to see the evolution uh, of, uh, of types that don't play by the rule, the rule being determined by the activities of the types that are forming the group. So I'm trying to avoid the word cheat. But there are types um, that would take advantage, perhaps, of the collective activity. So we could imagine over here, we've got our uh, XCs, and we've got lots of XCs. They've been increasing. But we've got, uh, what are we going to call it? Uh, we can't call it, we'll call it an XR, a rogue. And this rogue uh, can reap benefit from the activities of those that are engaged in the collective behavior. It doesn't contribute any of the, um, let, let's, let's think about glue production, and then we can, we've, got a, we've got a nice example. So C is a glue. We've got a, a cell that has a mutation. It's producing a glue. When the cells divide, uh, they don't fully separate because the glue holds them together. Uh, let's imagine that that glue confers some sort of selective advantage. So I'm immediately thinking pseudomonas in microcosms uh, because it's what I think about. This is a glass vial. Mutants arise from the ancestral type. The ancestral type swims around here, flagella. They overproduce glues. By virtue of overproducing the glues, the cells are able to form uh, a, a mat. The mat is not buoyant. It depends on effectively holding hands via the production of glues. By growing at this air-liquid interface, this mat achieves something that the types growing down here can't. That's the formation of the mat. And the benefit of this, despite the cost of producing the glue, which is a measurable cost, is oxygen. Oxygen is available there. There is no oxygen available down here. OK. So what we have then is a simple mutation, the formation of a group. There is a benefit which accrues from colonization of a new niche by producing this glue. This is available, open for exploitation. Types emerge that no longer produce the glue. And what they are able to do is to take advantage of the real estate here. And they can grow like, in amongst or even on top of the mat like this. So they get all the advantages of oxygen. They pay none of the cost of glue production. They do very well. But because they don't contribute anything to the strength of the mat, their proliferation comes at the expense of the group, which breaks and falls into the mat. Into the broth, and then everybody goes. So here we have a simple mutation that confers some sort of glue production. There's some selective benefit for that, and it's available for exploitation. So that's one example of a of a of a general principle that people think is important here in the emergence of the first groups. They are simple cooperative groups, but we immediately see the problem of um, well conflict. Conflict at the level of the group versus that of the individual self. So selection, while favoring the evolution of these groups, 
will also favor its destruction. Tragedy of the commons, the, the usual deal. But just a point of information, mm -hmm. in your mats, mm -hmm. the actual experiments, the rogues always cause the mat to disintegrate, or they don't, they don't go to some evolutionarily stable composition and just stop? In their, um, in their no, they, they, they destroy it. And you can measure this. Way. You can show that the strength is just, yeah. Um, now, they can keep on cycling between producers and non-producers. Um, so this kind of uh, tragedy of the common situation <coughs> we see in the biological world at many levels of biological organization has led to the recognition, at least as we move from simple cells, simple groups, to this point here, of a problem. Uh, the problem of cheating is seen as one that is of overriding uh, significance, one that needs to be solved. And it seems reasonable, after all. Uh, you know, if, the, if, the, if the groups that we think of are going to become eventually these groups down here, but their progress, so to speak, is uh, thwarted by the emergence of defecting types, then we need to solve them. And so that's led really to uh, the prevalence of, the, of an idea that says the next stage as we move on is the evolution of some sort of punishment system, self-policing system. Uh, so let's just give that primacy. And so if you were to read much of the literature, in fact, what I've outlined here is pretty much where the explanation ends, and you will see there are a huge number of holes and gaps. Um, we've got cells, we've got the first groups, we've got conflict, we've got to solve that problem, so people say policing, and the next stage somehow is here. There's a lot that we haven't explained. We certainly haven't explained the evolution of group reproduction at this stage. We'll get to the chicken and egg problem that is beginning to loom in a moment, but first of all, let's just go back and uh, put this cells, groups, conflicts, policing, multicellular organism <coughs> in the... Is, there, isn't there a natural way to police would simply be that uh, the non-producing, the non-operating things would simply isolate themselves and therefore would defeat their yeah. strategy? I mean, there are ways of police... Yeah, we could think Probably of different ways. non-blue-producing uh, yeah. bacteria if uh, they would certainly be the environment of non-blue producing other bacteria, and simply by that fact they would, they would uh, sink, whereas the rest may not. Yeah, I mean there may be, and there are some simple ways, I think, of self-policing emerging, um, and we could think about that a bit more. Uh, typically the way that people have thought about this is to look at self-policing systems and extant multicellular organisms and go, well, that's, that's what comes next. But of course, if you look at the complexity of any, even the simplest self-policing system involving you know, some sort of capacity to distinguish self from other and then to punish, and then you think about how that evolves, um, then I think you have a problem, particularly because that property of self-policing is arguably a group-level trait. It's arguably, therefore, the product of evolution by natural selection at the level of the collective. But we have not even got to the stage where collectives have the capacity for reproduction yet. So we begin to already get to this chicken and egg situation. 
But what we're calling defectors here can also be construed as having a regulatory effect for like the little echo system. I mean, if yeah. they're if if the so-called cooperators are producing all this glucose yeah. Yeah. And, and, and maybe they're gonna end up yeah. drowning in it, yeah. then yeah. the so-called defectors need it and bring it back into some kind of homostasis. That's no. not No, I like that. I, I mean I'm very partial to the idea that cheats should not be called cheats. In fact, turn them around, cheats could be the good guys and this is a it does. You're, you're very right. In fact, again, using terms like cooperate, cheat, yeah. immediately put us into a particular way of thinking that I don't think is always helpful. So yes, you, you're right. Thinking differently about what's going on here is, I think, uh, well, it's, 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 it's uh, well, there's fun. A, there's also this notion that homeostasis is, uh, is yeah. a good thing. Yeah. Right? yeah. But uh, bringing, bringing back death there, Maybe this is just a very natural process for this particular map to die. Yeah, and yeah. the game is to get out of that map yeah. and uh, yeah. to the next one yeah. 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 before that happens. Yeah. And uh, um, the swimmers, or well, whatever, the, the stickers, yeah. will be more capable of doing that than uh, the non stickers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No policing. Just yeah. And in fact, yeah, you, you could even come out of this, and we, we built a model that actually shows you get self-policing for free out of the tensions between the different levels of selection. Oh, but the selection. selection. With, uh, yeah. With yeah, if you've got something that's, a, if you've got competition between mats, for example, and this mat here um, has a very high mutation rate to produce cheating types, and this one has a low mutation rate, now we've got to imagine a particular ecology, but this mat is likely to collapse before this mat because the cheats are going to emerge here. Well, if the game is to colonize new ponds or something, then we've, so, so selection would actually work against uh, genotypes that have a high mutation rate or whatever mechanism to produce the cheating type. So there are ways that we could think about. But, but this is also suggesting that uh, one should expect different things to happen in uh, one paradigm where you basically imagine the maintenance of homeostatic uh, state for you know, some very long time yeah. versus uh, very transient uh, appearance and disappearance, yep. Yep. possibly yeah. every other time under different environmental uh, conditions. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think that's, that's really, that is very important. Important. And I think those sorts of ideas are critical for thinking about the evolution of development, which is basically well, partly how you maintain homeostasis, yeah. and therefore the kind of conditions that might come, particularly if you couple organismal activity with changes in environmental states, you could perhaps generate some conditions that would be conducive. I have a question about these mats, which mm -hmm. I guess typically mm -hmm. grow to uh, occupy the entire mm -hmm. interface. They're mm -hmm. limited by the experimental mm -hmm. arena in which mm -hmm. they're, they're living. But there are other questions like Volvox or whatever about what what is the optimal size? Mm -hmm. And if the size gets too big, maybe waste products limited, and presumably there is some uh, trend towards an optimal size, like the, your, your yellow yeah. X's, there are five of them yeah. in an organism, yeah. Yeah. as opposed to two. And so that's, I guess, another issue that is relevant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. indeed. And that presumably is going to be determined largely by the interaction between whatever this group is and its environment. Right. I mean, and, and physicochemical. I mean, in, in our case, um, if you make the tube, or the diameter much wider than sort of you know 20 millimeters, okay. then uh, they fail. 
ah. because the capacity to grow across the surface and cement to the to the edge, they, can, they, can they, the they edge. get too heavy in the middle and then they just go ah. to the bottom. Right. So, 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 so my Chavasano's answer, I mean, the yeast, you know, um, the balance between selective and sedimentation. That's right. I mean, that's a good thing. That's a, yeah. yeah. surface divide issue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're many, uh, very sensitive. I mean, you know, pH, shock, you know, all sorts of things. So, what, yeah. so in those where they can't grow to attach, what yeah. happens to the, are there also cheaters happening in the, because uh, they Well, they could arise depending how early they come. I mean, the cheaters reap an advantage, or the, 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 the ones that live here can reap an advantage if there's something here. If there's not something here, then these ones will not reap such an advantage. I mean, other things come into play there. Um, but the, 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 the capacity to form these groups is, is highly maladaptive under many conditions, actually. It needs a very specific ecology. Corals in this picture. Corals. And how do they solve these problems? Ah, well, we haven't kind of got there yet. We can think about, I mean, there are many organisms that, uh, uh, you know, in terms of these, are non-paradigm stasis. So corals you know, can fragment. Uh, they don't need to go through a germline. I mean, they've, you know, they've solved a problem in a, in a way that is at least not uh, so common. Fragmentation doesn't seem to be a terribly common way of reproducing, but it can work, for sure. And there are, there are interesting issues about fragmentation with regard to heritability. You know, uh, you know, so if they, uh, and, and the fact that development doesn't start from a single cell there, it starts from a chunk of cells, so you take some of your, you know, there's not such a clean divide between generations, and, but it works. If you went to Eugene's talk yesterday, a giant fish can enter a coral and emerge as a small fish. It's quite right. It's amazing. Right. Oh, yes, I did go to Eugene's talk. Yes, 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 yes. That's right. Another amazing. Yeah. That's a really interesting transition. Floating coral. Floating corals. Okay, so. That's the evolutionary significance. So. Um, okay, just uh, backtracking and then to put. So, you know. Many of you here will be aware of theoretical frameworks of various kinds for explaining the evolution uh, of cooperation and conflict. Uh, the, I guess largely the philosophers of biology that have been thinking about evolutionary transition, uh, Heisler and DeMuth in particular, came up with a way of, of, of sort of, I guess, subdividing or dividing a theoretical, two, defining two different theoretical frameworks that apply to different uh, parts of this transition that um, we should just acknowledge in passing well very much so this theory is known as multi-level selection theory it simply recognizes that selection operates at multiple levels and that's as a consequence of these uh, properties existing at level different levels of biological organization so the so-called MLS1 uh, provides a way of thinking about and explaining cooperation, and it extends from about here to here. What a defining feature of MLS1 kinds of thinking is, well, we can, we can, we can distinguish MLS1 from MLS2 that operates down here. On the basis of the fitness of groups relative to the fitness of the individuals that make up the groups. So down here, we're thinking about, there's a, a whole body of theory, uh, trait group models, kin selection models, game theory, 
many of which, well, all of which, are uh, provide a way of explaining how traits or behaviors that are costly to individuals can be maintained in populations. And uh, the essence of these is, is the recognition that if interactions are localized, if you're more likely to interact uh, either by kin or just by physical proximity with types that share your kinds of behavior, then costly behaviors uh, can be maintained. Now, we're thinking, well, the thinking here is very much about traits that are properties of individuals having relevance within a group context. So we're not specifically thinking, and the theory here does not, by and large, have any explicit um, uh, uh, process or does not describe any explicit group level process in terms of the death and the birth of groups. So the focus of our interest is individual entities evolving within a group context. Is trait a well-defined thing? Or could I say multicellularity is a trait and then explain uh, the whole thing I'm aiming to explain? The, um, I mean, is trait really a well-defined concept here? Is it something yeah. that's so amorphous I can apply it at any? Well, I uh, guess we're using it in a generic sense. Um, thinking about, I mean, it could be any behavior that's costly. Um, I guess as a geneticist, we tend to think of individual, you know, genes carrying traits, but of course the trait or behavior could be complex and determined by many things. I'm not sure how far we get if we say multicellularity is a um, costly uh, endeavor, how we would conceptualize that problem in terms of these frames. It's a little less. It's not a trait of an individual. No, it's a property of a. But supposing I start the stage. Traits have to be individual. It is a trait of the individual. Yeah, traits have to be applied to individuals. No, but here, here the thinking very much is properties of individuals, which have relevance in a group context. But supposing I start with saying, okay, the protozole is, is a, uh, um, a group of RNAs and you know, combined with some metab metabolism. And then that, I mean, that certainly seems to fall on this. Context, but, but, but and I think what I mean, great okay. thing, what's calling trading on context is yeah. different. I mean, I, I think I the only thing here, I mean, we, I don't just want the to, property. Just there's a couple of things just to make. First of all, there's a whole body of theory that sits within this ballpark okay. here. It's about explaining behaviors that are costly yes, to yeah. individuals, and it does so within the context of a group, but it has no explicit formulation of group level properties, and so in doing typically price equation, um, trade group models, they're all about individuals but recognizing that the evolution of those individuals takes place within a group. But if you're using trait like that, I, I could also say put trait on that long list there yeah. and then say, oh yeah, but then there's a challenge to explain what a trait is of a... Well, that's right. And but there, the challenge, I think, tell me if this is synonymous with what you're saying, is to explain um, traits that are properties of the collective. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm absolutely, thinking. we need, do need. Now, natural selection here, we're thinking about, you know, it, it acts at the level of individual entities. Here we've got these individual entities with these properties. The traits that can evolve are traits relevant to the level at which selection's acting. So for a selection to give rise to traits that are adaptive at the group level, then these groups need to be able to participate in this process. Without that, you cannot evolve group level traits, although you could have apparent Group level traits yeah. are a product, but that's I'm not criticizing the yeah. use of yeah. the word trait yeah. or the yeah. concept. Yeah. Yeah. Mathematicians use the word set. 
Yeah. Right? Yeah. But there's lots of problems with sets, actually, right? If you okay. push it all the way to, you know, can anything be a set? And so, okay. 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 <laughs> I have a question about the multi-level selection, uh, the, the first part. Yeah. Um, that already starts to play a role when defectors come in, when you have these cheaters. Yeah. So what if there is an earlier stage where you have, organ where you have these complexes that are so small? Mm. Uh, say they are a reaction to predation. They right. Just form. And, and so no, cop no, no cheating is that what you're and, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then mm. all that happens is kind of a competitive exclusion scenario where you have the single cells mm. and then the complex. Yeah. And that seems to be, to me, to not be a multi-level selection problem. It seems I that they're on the right. same level and they're yeah. just kind of, they can yeah. go for competitive exclusion. So could there be yeah. a, a step somewhere there in between? Yeah. I, I, maybe there's just the same level of selection and something else happens and then we get to more yeah. complex. I think, I think you're right. I, I, I think particularly in cases of, of the size for avoidance of predation, right. it doesn't see, well, you know, is there, does it make sense to talk about the cells that are forming this group to avoid predation cooperating? Well, yeah, that's what I'm on. That's why yeah, cooperation what, I don't yeah. really like. On the other, yeah, yes, and I agree, you know, and, and what would it mean under those circumstances to cheat? Yes. Well, you know, you could, so, so the maintenance of this group is dependent on something in the environment. That's true, the predator. Without the predator, they would probably not stay together. They would swim away. Well, it depends for how long you have predation. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 That's, that's, true. that's true. That's true. That's true. Anyway, yes. Let's. I'm just conscious of time, but yes, I think you're 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 right, and I don't think we have to. It's not necessary that cooperation is a part of that earlier stages. I could imagine. Or that we need to go to multiple levels immediately. Or or the need to go to multiple levels. I totally agree just with because that. Because we have a group. Or even to go to Darwinian. Uh, groups with Darwinian properties to begin with. Um, some of these, if we get time to uh, envisage groups that are units of evolution, but not units of selection, which would be among the first groups. Boris. I guess I'm hung up a little bit on uh, this business of uh, uh, differentiation, and if you like, evolution of uh, differentiation. Right? Yeah. And uh, some of the things that uh, um, are then uh, um, on the board, I, I, I think, uh, sort of uh, are, are rather distinct in the sense that uh, right, your, your example with uh, the mat, right? So every time uh, that there is this change of the phenotype, sticky trait appears. Yeah. Yeah. Right, it's a mutation. If I understand correctly. Uh, well, it could. And it is being uh, it is, right. So it is heritable yeah. and it yeah. is uh, reinvented yeah. every yeah. time it happens. Yeah. Yeah. It happens to be a trait yeah. which has presumably many ways of. Uh, yeah. Uh, rising. Uh, yeah. Arising, so there's a rather high probability okay. of generating yeah. a by mutation, yeah. and presumably there's also high probability of losing it by mutation. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we can imagine uh, uh, sort of several different uh, sort of scenarios of uh, this, uh, now let's call it uh, phenotypic variability. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. you could one, get One yeah. would be uh, that uh, you know, there are some uh, uh, you know, genetic switches Yep. that turn on this other sort of metabolism. Yep. And I can imagine that for even genetically identical individuals, yeah. it might be beneficial, mm. cooperative, mm. that some of them will be I know, fixating nitrogen and others will be uh, uh, yeah. uh, cutting sucrose or something, right? So, 
Uh, but this, this is a very different kind of a switch. So now we can also talk about the, uh, you know, cheating in whether I go into this uh, switch state or that. Yeah. But uh, but we wouldn't really call it the cheating. I, I agree. Uh, yeah. Discuss yeah. this as, yeah. as a matter of yeah. you know, yeah. stability. Yes, yeah. I, I agree. I mean, the nature of these first groups is various and could be various. And there are three distinct possibilities, which I could get to in a minute. Um, but I'm with you. The, a lot of this, some of the problems, so all I'm trying to do here is yeah, outline it, just some the, of the, the problems. The biofilm again, right, mm -hmm. which is yet another case yeah. Yeah. where you, you have a cooperation between uh, sort of different uh, Well, you may not species, even have cooperation. You may just have some living on the surface by virtue of the fact that one, when one divides, it just happens to be yeah, soft spring yeah, the same position. I mean, it's even much simpler than that. With two enzymes, one of which catalyzes the phosphorylation on the other, you can get a switch and you can get oscillators. So we don't think anything is complicated, any of these things, to get a lot of the phenomena starting, at least. Phenomenons um, you may argue yeah, about, do we attach this name to yeah, it or not? Yeah, yeah I, no, I, I, I would agree with you. So, so, we're, it's kind of a, of, so, so one's a, sort, of, sort of implying upon this discussion much more level of complexity than it seems is needed to get the basic phenomena. Yeah. Well, I think the sorts of things that you're already drawing attention to and the fact that you could start out really, really simply, yeah. and if you did, you circumvented a lot of the complexity and a lot of the challenges, I, I'm completely yeah. with you. Yeah. Uh, but uh, at the moment, uh, in the literature, there is not a lot of people that have been thinking about these early stages and what might be involved. The, what I'm outlining here is really the, the kind of what, how, how people have thought about it. If you were to read Akash's book and well, so on. Maybe we know. can throw out the literature and say, let's look forward. Let's, I agree. We can come back afterwards when we're writing yeah. papers and have to yeah. put citations yeah. in yeah. as to what people yeah. said in the past. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, I think maybe at the Takaria, whatever, tonight, if we've had yeah. enough drinks, we should start with a list of words, of Humpty Dumpty words, and saying, okay, we'll agree that these words can mean whatever the speaker wants them to mean at that time, and we're just about to use them, because it seems so much is loaded in what the words are and what other people say. I think we already said that. I think we said yeah. this list, where, uh, this yeah. set where sex is at the top, we can use them at many different levels, yeah. and they'll have different meanings yeah. across those different levels, yeah. and we could just, you know, we could use the Greek alphabet, or we could call yes. it really characters. <laughs> it totally doesn't matter, right? X, Y, you know, bubblehead is... But we can use them now as a proxy. They're proxies for concepts. Yeah. And then the specific characteristics of that concept will have to be uh, situation specific. Yeah. 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 So okay. both, some yeah. of us have to leave in yeah. about a half yeah. an hour. And I'm yes. just wondering if we were going to yeah. get to this yes. model. I will. Yeah. Right? yeah. OK. So I'm completely with Daniel's comments there. I mean, this is, this is absolutely good. One, one more thing that I think is an interesting point to bear in mind. It comes out of the theoretical distinctions. And I think it is real. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting problem that needs contending with. It's an issue. So this fitness in this MLS1 sense. So we have these groups. And the fitness of the groups here is nothing more than the average or the additive sum of the individual entities that make up these groups. Okay. So there's no emergent properties at the group level. Okay. Once we move into this area, MLS2, and how we've got there is a, we haven't de dealt with that. Fitness here is defined differently. Fitness here at the level of the emergent multicellular organism is no longer the additive or the average sum of the fitness of the individual cells that make it up. So let's just draw a little picture to make this clear. Um, we can remove this. So in our first groups, before groups have evolved the capacity to reproduce, um, here we have uh, 
This group's made up of fewer cells than this group. The fitness of this group, uh, is, and in both groups, is nothing more than the average sum of the individual cells that make them up. So if this, <coughs> these groups are found at the same point in time, these individual cells are growing less uh, rapidly than these cells. The fitness of the group is determined entirely by the fitness of the individual cells that make them up. There is no emergence at the group level. Group reproduction is nothing more than or fitness. In fact, we, you know, it gets confused here because people don't have a clear idea about what group, group reproduction is here. But just the, the idea is that fitness of the groups, if the individuals grow faster, the group has higher fitness. The moment that you have phenotypic differentiation, that's going to Because individuals are genetically identical, but yeah. Let's keep it real simple. All I want to make clear is at this stage back here, groups when they first emerge are nothing more than the problem. Necessarily specialization or No, at this stage nothing's going on, but it, it, yeah, it, lots implied. But here in the MLS2 arena, so MLS1, and in the MLS2 arena, we can have this situation here. Uh, we have this group here, which is comprised of just four cells. And it gives rise to, well, we don't need to fill them in, two groups. Whereas this one down here, which is made up of many more cells because they're growing much faster, in the same period of time does not give rise to any offspring. Okay, so the, what, what the, the focus of our attention is, is the reproductive output here of collectives. That's the level at which individuality emerges. We're interested in it here as well. Something seems to have happened en route from individual cells that came about at some point down here, which resulted in, borrowing from Rick Michaud, I think a very important notion of fitness decoupling. Okay, so and this seems to be something that happens uh, during the transition from individuals to collectives. There is, it need not happen. It's true, but if we look at life around us, there is no sense that elephants leave, elephants which have many more cells in their bodies compared to mice leave more offspring as a consequence of having many more cells in their body. So the reproductive output of the group is no longer determined solely by the properties of the individual cells, or at least the growth rate of the individual cells that make them up. And this would be an example of that. Earlier on, group context is important, but it's all about selection, evolution taking place at the level of individual entities. And the group is just a context within this takes place. As we approach multicellular organisms, there seems to come a point where fitness becomes decoupled. The fitness of the collectives is no longer explained by the fitness of the individual cells. Of course, the properties must be explained but not at the level of the fitness. So, but going back again, sorry, to the predation example or to the phenotypic mm -hmm. differentiation, could you envisage that MLS1 might not exist at all? That maybe from yeah. the beginning... You could get this deal... This or, and, thing, yeah. and then might not even be two levels of selection, but mm -hmm. already from the beginning, the, the two cells that are stuck together and can escape predation simply do better against their single cellular yeah. uh, competitor and they out-competed mm -hmm. or something like that. And, and that I... I think you're right. Yeah, I think you could have this situation. You could pretty much get, and the, I mean, the yeast experiment from Will Ratcliffe is, come on to it in a second, is pretty much, you, you get collectives that have the capacity to reproduce by a fission process, it comes about for free. So, you know, there's not, we, we've actually 
forget all of that. We've, gone, we've more or less gone to this in a, single, in a single step as a consequence of chance and history. What's the alternative to for free? Sorry, what's the alternative for free? Um, <laughs> that uh, you pay for it. <laughs> it. It needs an evolutionary explanation of some sort. So, this has happened. Uh, well, it's hard to imagine some of the steps. Well, you, I could imagine non-adaptive um, uh, causes for traits that, some, that subsequently become important and adaptive at the level of the collective. Okay, so this, this notion of fitness decoupling does seem to be something that by and large happens and is interesting. Along with that, decoup that decoupling also is this notion of emergence, that, that, that multicellular organisms possess properties, at least in terms of their reproductive capacity, uh, that are not simply a product of the growth rate of the individual cells that make them up. All right, ah, the chicken and egg, I don't know. Maybe we just go straight on. The chicken and egg, briefly. You want the chicken and egg? Yeah. Okay, you tell me which comes first. <laughs> so we've already kind of come up against this, and you've already, I think, seen ways of getting around it. So this, this sort of classical textbook view of things, cells, groups, conflict, oh, policing, and then somehow we've got this multicellular organism that's come about tells us nothing about the evolution of some of these critical things, in particular, the evolution of reproduction. So we can end up with a situation where you go, okay, policing, yes, we do need policing. That's how we solve the problem of cheating. But policing is arguably, as I pointed out before, the product of uh, selection acting at the level of the collective. And we have not explained here how the evolution of collective reproduction has emerged. So we end up, uh, well, let's just focus on reproduction in a situation which is nonsensical where we end up invoking the evolution of reproduction as both cause and consequence. And it's not a good thing. You need to explain these things on particularly the evolution of group level reproduction. Until you've got the emergence of individuality at this level of the collective, it doesn't make a lot of sense to talk about the evolution of uh, some of these major issues that are arguably require, first of all, individuality at the collective level to be in place. Is the chicken and egg situation real? No, it's not. The problem comes about for the reasons that Daniel and others have been indicating for failing to think, I think, in more simplistic ways about what happens early on. What are the properties of these earliest groups? Da bearing in mind that we do need to explain the evolution of individuality, that it is not simply a case that these properties that exist at the lower level are magically moved up a level particularly reproduction. <coughs> so here's a framework for thinking about some of those, actually free from multi-level selection theory, all the rest of it, just sitting down with uh, Eric, our resident Matho, and thinking about what would be the properties of the simplest multicellular organisms. Um, to do this, we sat back and said, well, we need a set of sufficient conditions, minimal sufficient conditions, for these groups and for these groups to evolve. And we, we just have two conditions. First of all, that there be a group stage that it exists. The group must exist. The group doesn't exist, we can't talk about a group. Um, and again, we, as we talked earlier on, it could be 
the group could be transient, it could be due to uh, taxes toward a single position, it could be some boundary in the environment, it could be ephemeral, anything will do. But there must be, at least for a transient period of time, the existence of a group. We're thinking about the evolution of the group, so the groups need to have a certain set of properties that allow them to evolve. That requires some means of transmitting heritable variation. Uh, and all we require is that our groups have some way of reproducing. We do not require them. Uh, th th there must be variation, some way of group, some, some basic means of group level reproduction. We'll look at that in a moment. But we do not require there to be a link between variation and reproductive output. So we open the door to, to non-Darwinian evolution of these groups when they first emerge. And I rather like this because, of course, it emphasizes once again that Darwinian properties, if we're going to think about them, they need an evolutionary explanation. Sorry, Paul, can you just say exactly what you said again in different words? I think that uh, uh, that, um, that uh, with regard to the evolution of groups, all we require, so the groups, in order for them to meet the necessary conditions to evolve, they need to have some means of reproduction. There does need to be variation between entities. Um, and there needs to be some degree of heritability. But what we are not requiring, which is a condition for Darwinian evolution, is for variation to be linked, at least some of it, to reproductive output. So here we could have, you know, well, an observer could see the emergence of groups. Uh, these, you would see that these groups differ to one another. They could be transient, ephemeral. You know, most of them may be utter failures and they get nowhere. But perhaps, well, there's opportunity. Uh, for uh, evolution of these groups. And should there be some sort of improvement in reproductive capacity that, uh, and even where there is variation linked to reproductive capacity, then we have the emergence of some sort of Darwinian machine, even in the most primitive kind of way. But once you've got that, you're, you're away. You're not, so you don't, you don't have that arrow. You don't have that square. To begin with, no, that, that, that's a, that's a, that, 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 that will ensure those entities will evolve by natural selection if the environment is appropriate. But Dropping that means uh, you're going to have groups that can reproduce, and therefore, provided you've got some capacity for reproduction, there's possibility for something to happen. If there's no reproduction, we've got one group, if it can only just get bigger and... Well, I mean, once you've got groups and there's some variability between them, then generally you expect some difference in how, how they reproduce. So it seems that sort of comes for yeah, free. Yeah, uh, yeah it, may. it may. Indeed, it may. Okay, so, so these two sufficient conditions Let's think about, uh, well, uh, first of all, an individual cell, an eye cell, it's back you know, way at the beginning, it divides, produces another eye cell, but every now and then it can produce a G cell. This is a cell that now participates in the formation of a group. By glue, by just a boundary, I mean, it could be anything. That goes on, we get two G cells, that now forms a G group. Okay, so <clears throat> this meets our first set of conditions, existence. There it is. It now must be able to reproduce in some way. So thinking this through, we, we think there are three, well, there are four, but basically three ways, uh, 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 three different kinds of proto-multicellular organisms that um, satisfy these conditions. And therefore, we will call them multicellular. Proto might be a better thing. Okay, so here's type 1, and then we've got type 2 and type 3, and I'll run very quickly through these. 
So type 1, here's our eye cell. It gives rise to a G. Well, let me come back down here. Here's the eye cell. Eye cells can reproduce. The eyes can give rise to eyes, can give rise to Gs. Uh, sorry, eyes. Eyes can also give rise to Gs. And in this type 1 organism, Gs can also reproduce themselves. So this is effectively, well, this is exactly analogous to Will Ratcliffe's yeast snowflake, and he will tell you a lot about that. These are these yeasts that, were, that came out of a, um, uh, a selection experiment where they were selecting for sedimentation. Uh, and then growing them up, and then putting them into a long cylinder, and then collecting the yeast from the bottom. Uh, they had to sediment. So the heavier you are, the better. Um, but if you're very large and very heavy, when you're grown in shaken culture, you, you don't grow very well at all. So there's some sort of trade-off. Anyway, the, the, the short of it is these snowflake groups, by chance of stuff that had happened in the past, uh, have the capacity I don't know, in some sort of stochastic way for individual cells to undergo autolysis. So we've got these snowflake things. Uh, a cell undergoes autolysis there, and that um, branch breaks off. So this is a group, and it's able to give rise to group babies straight off. So this would be a type 1 type of organism, where um, the organism itself is an autonomously replicating group. It's got off the ground right from, from scratch, either Gs or IGs. Here's another possibility. Uh, this is a situation where the multicellular organism here uh, is a product of the I cell, the single cell, and the G cell together. Here, the I's reproduce, but the G's can't reproduce. So I's give rise to I's, and they give rise to G's. But G's do not give rise to I's. So the multicellular organism is, in fact, a combination of I's and G's. I on its own is a single-celled organism. G on its own can't reproduce. The multicellular organism is a connection of the collection of the two. Now, if these G's, when they emerge, just simply floated off, and remember, they can't reproduce on their own. They can just continue to get bigger then nothing interesting happens. Although an observer could see, would see groups emerging and changes in frequencies of groups and may even conclude there's evolution taking place at the group level where there would be evolution taking place, but it would all be a product of the eyes. The so, so the genes are getting bigger and bigger because they are accumulating individuals. That's right, yes. Yeah. So that's what that has shown, yeah but they're not able to reproduce. Now, if there is some sort of interaction between G cells that affects the I cells, then you're away. And of course, this kind of distinction is exactly what we see. This is the soma germline distinction that we see uh, in metazoans. The third type of proto-multicellular organism, where again, groups exist and have some capacity for evolution, is one where the eyes reproduce. They could fit into various. Actually, they could fit into type 1, type 2, or type 3, actually, depending. And in fact, there's no reason that one, th th these are distinct boundaries. One could imagine starting off this route and perhaps coming back here, or vice versa. In fact, you know, when you start applying this sort of framework to some of those extremely interesting uh, so-called primitive multicellular forms, 
you see a lot of these sorts of examples. So here we have a situation um, where I's give rise to G's and G's give rise to I's. So once again, the organism is a combination of I's and G's. This, you see some parallels again in some curious eukaryotic ciliates. Sorry, Gina, for example, this is also inspired by our Pseudomonas experiment where we go from I's to G's, G's to I's, I's to G's. Stem cells do that too, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and this has some interesting properties. Um, well, we won't go into these now. But interesting properties, too, in terms, in terms of thinking about the eye. And we talked about before about eye cells. Not, uh, you know, well, eye cells, we would typically see of the eye cells as the selfish types, the cheating types. But you know, getting rid of that kind of thinking here, we have G cells and we have eye cells. And these eye cells may, in fact, be the nemesis of the G cells here, but equally their savior, depending on how one starts thinking about these. And there are interesting implications, in fact, for going on uh, in each of these three directions. What does the dotted line mean in type 1 from G to I? I uh, yeah, G's, G's don't need to give rise to I's, but they could. So just for the sake of mathematical completion, that we also allow that possibility. Can you, can you clarify in what way stem cells are type 3? I think it's stem cells are type 2. They are self-renewing. They produce one of themselves and something different. Yeah. Yeah, they can make themselves and they can make the other thing. So they, That's 2. So that would be 2, But the other thing that they make cannot, is not a stem cell. They can make a stem cell. They can make yeah. just two stem cells. Yeah. yeah. Stem cells can make two stem cells. Yeah, but non-stem cells cannot make a stem cell. Correct. Yeah. No, really, but that's, that's true. That's true. So it's not three. So it's two. It's two. It's two. It's two. Yeah. Okay. It's two. It's kind of. I mean, division can be symmetric or asymmetric. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing that explains stem cells. So it could be. It could be. Yeah. Okay. Two point one. Right. You, you could have. Somewhere yeah. slightly yeah. 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 So I think that's it. So that's where I wanted to end. And and the, the take home would be, exactly as we've been developing, that I think there is tons of opportunity to think differently about the evolutionary transition from individual cells uh, to self-reproducing collectives. Uh, that the nature of those earliest groups, what they might be, and the implications of for their evolution. Um, at least for me, is quite exciting to think about. Thank you. Yes, David. So, so de-Darwinization went by a little quickly. Ah, uh, de-Darwinization. Yeah. Well, that's what happened. Once you get, um, yeah. So we, so we, yeah. Um, so we didn't. There's lots of things here. One way or another, extant multicellular organisms. Uh, have and do have to contend with the conflicts that exist within the body of the organism. There are various ways, I mean, we see sophisticated self-policing systems, immune system, and all the rest of it. But one, there, there are many ways of, of in, in a way, taking away from the lower level the potency of the Darwinian machine. And that comes in part simply by selection shifting to the higher level. So as we end, as, as, um, as, um, as Darwinian individuality emerges at that higher level, this happens. Um, it happens potently as a consequence of some modes of reproduction, particularly those that go via a bottleneck and a germline stage, where development begins. I'm sorry, I, I can't. I can't hear the sorry. answer to my question. Go ahead. So, so, so basically, it's a, it's it, it's a recognition that as selection shifts ever more potently to the higher level, yeah. it 
it, the, the capacity for that lower level um, to function as the most potent Darwinian machine that it did back down here is somewhat compromised. So apoptosis would be an example of the... Yeah, or just... So in our experiments that I'll talk about next week, there in our... The, 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 so these are organisms that emerge via the type 3 route, where the organisms that... Uh, the groups, the organisms that are most successful after this period of evolution are capable of leaving most offspring. So we can count the number of babies, group babies they leave. But the individual cells that make up this group actually grow at the doubling time uh, is very slow. It's actually slower than the ancestor, which is kind of curious that that should come about. But I think this is, this is a consequence of, of now selection shifting the currency, if you like, to the, to the collective level. Of course, the cells that make up the body of the organism must be functioning, but it's no longer critical that they grow really, really, really fast. So redarwinization is cancer in this job, in a sense. Uh, so going back to uh, no, no, that would be actually cancer would be a, a reflection of still the operation of Darwinian processes. Redarwinization. Yeah, redarwinization. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. And that, of course, is there because. Euthanization. Yeah, 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 yeah. um, so everyone, the thing you just said about you know, reproducing slower than the original ones. So in some ways. When it's saying that one can think of these levels, whatever, as time scales rather than um, some other uh, scales of levels or one's group and so on, just in the same sense as fitness, as reproduction, short-term reproductive yeah. fitness, yeah. as avoiding extinction, yeah. then there's the diversification, and they're all different things on different time scales. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me you're already putting some of this at the what comes in already as early as level. And so in some ways, the sort of time scale um, separation things and then, you know, all of it dynamically, which it is, all this, is, um, I mean, both gets one away from certain um, words, maybe, um, but also sort of seems a natural context to, to, to think about these things, um, which, uh, you know, sort of, and then, in, you know, in terms of fixed point, what's apoptosis? Apoptosis is something which is quite stable, and it's, because I that, I mean, there's one state which you go towards, which is a stable state, which is zero. Yeah. And, you know, zero is a special number. And, um, and that, you know, comes from more to catalytic levels and to up to extinction levels and everything. Um, but the, really the crucial thing in there is, is the dynamics and the time scales and the sort of separations of those. And uh, um, it seems a lot of things can just sort of take off from, uh, from that. Yep, I, I agree. So it sounds related, uh, in fact, very related comment, which I guess has been bothering me a bit from the very beginning of the talk where um, right, somewhere in the middle yeah. there was the sentence written that the uh, individual cells give up yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, something yeah, to yeah, become, yeah, I don't quite remember yeah, what it was. Yeah, yes, yes. And, uh, so there is this notion of giving up yeah. uh, rate of proliferation, uh, yeah. uh, but this uh, rate of proliferation somehow is only important as long as uh, the faster proliferating rate is directly competing with yes. a lower proliferating rate. Yeah. So yeah. if yeah. the group yeah. has emerged yeah. in order to colonize a different right. niche, sorry for yeah, yeah. using the word, then it's completely immaterial, right? So the only thing uh, is yeah. ultimate survival. And yeah. we, we, we are sort of fixated on uh, this uh, um, rate of growth. Mm. But if you think that uh, uh, there are bottlenecks, right? Mm. So even if the population mm. is constant uh, size, we know that uh, there's common ancestry bottleneck. Ultimately, yeah. right on the scale of uh, you know, n generations, only one yeah. individual gets to pass its uh, lineage along. Right. So, 
one doesn't give up no, too much. I agree. And you can flip it That's around. How, if anything, uh, by uh, yeah. uh, um, organizing uh, your uh, germline into that sort of bottleneck survivor uh, in uh, some mm -hmm. aggregate of N cells. I do not, I, we're comparing apples and oranges. I don't think one that's right. I think that, anything given up. That's right. And it depends on the perspective. Exactly. Yes. Those terms I borrowed from uh, Samir Akasha, who, who expresses things in that way. But you could equally, so that's looking at from the lower level, you could ask questions that were projected from the higher level, for example. you know. I think you know, the interesting one is, is how does group level reproduction emerge? That's, that's the thing that I think matters. It so much flows from that, actually. Well, but I guess where you ask the question can lead you to different... Well, that's absolutely true. Reasons. There are many... That's right. That's right. And, and again, thinking about these three sorts of different types, you know, the implications of how you go via... You know, uh, this, this sort of route, route here is typically a fragmentation route, and there are clearly implications for what happens if you go through a fragmentation route in terms of the possibilities for emergence of Darwinian properties there. The soma, th this sort of route where Gs emerge that are dependent on Is for their reproduction, again, well, there a bottleneck is probably almost inevitable, um, and there will be benefits almost certainly that accrue to an organism that has clear divisions between its but not all organisms do. So I think, yes, there the are different perspectives, that there are many different perspectives that are possible, I think, depending on the state of the, those initially emergent groups. Yeah. Could you give an example of this interaction between genes and eyes in, in the second time? That you, you said that the reproduction of genes yeah. depends on the eyes. Eyes, that's right. Uh, could you give an example of that? The, the situation in, in humans, in eukaryotes, in, in metazoans, where I is the germline, the perpetual germline, and G is the soma. Okay, so, so it's the... Yeah. So a lot of these examples of policing, you know, people have looked at them as chicken and egg problems, but just looking at, at it as a chicken and egg problem might be the wrong approach. For example, uh, you're talking about self-recognition. Mm -hmm. A lot of organisms don't even need it until they evolve to fuse. Okay, so if you look at marine invertebrates, a lot of them become colonial, and they have uh, the problem of, of competing with clone mates that break off the colony, like a colony of coral or something like this, or something that grows around a substrate, and then all of a sudden it's meeting its clone. So they evolve to fuse then that opens up the possibility for things that then shirk the somatic duties. But the somatic differentiation has been there for a long time already. Yes. Yeah. So it's yeah. Uh, it's not really a chicken and egg problem there. No, no, I think... In the cases yeah, yeah. where you have policing and social insects, for example, again, you have the evolution of uh, multiple queen colonies, multiple mating by queens, yeah. and then, you know, this isn't the ancestral condition, so these things pop up and you can look at them as... Uh, you know, you have to look at the immediate steps leading to these things. I, I, I quite agree. I mean, I don't think the chicken and egg problem exists. It, it comes largely out of Rick Michaud's thinking, I think. Um, where, where what I've outlined is, is how we go to self-policing and then suddenly the models shift uh, to using an MLS2 type of model. And in fact, even the philosophers come back to this and they say, well, this is MLS1 and this is MLS2. And the evolution of multicellularity is the transition between MLS1 and MLS2. 
which tells you absolutely nothing about what goes on. Uh, the, the issue is, <laughs> what is the transition between MLS1 and MLS2? How does it come about? Yeah. So, causing trouble. No, they're great. I think the I philosophers in this area have been really super. But this, there is a sense that, I mean, again, Samir, I think, wrote, there's a gray area between MLS1 and MLS2. And Rick Michaud, I think, very important contribution was rec this recognition of fitness decoupling. Something seems to happen there. Some, but, I mean, as you're pointing out, if you, start, if you come right back to the beginning and you just start thinking about those simple groups, the kinds of processes that might go on, then we don't end up, you know, you can see it's possible for these seemingly complex traits here to emerge gradually through a combination of adaptive and non-adaptive means. And uh, doesn't mean to say that the problem is solved, but um, at least I think experimentally it becomes possible to think about how one might even do experiments and how some of these incredibly, seemingly incredibly complicated, almost impossible to imagine evolving uh, properties could emerge, actually, easily, simply, in this small state. But instead of thinking of this in this uh, hierarchy with so-called higher and <coughs> levels, wouldn't it be better to think of it as a circle? Because when groups fragment back into individuals, that can have fitness consequences. Uh, Yes, I mean, there are um, many organisms that do, um, you know, uh, exist in these kind of complex circles, you know, the, the life cycles of, well, you can tell us about all these life cycles of here. Yeah, I will on Wednesday. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Great. Right. Uh, let's, thank let's thank Paul again.